Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thank you for your word, and we just pray, Lord, that you'd have your way with us, and that you guide us and lead us, and uh, Lord, help us to learn what you want us to learn, and help us to, more importantly, live accordingly, that we would be people who live according to your word, that we would stand on the rock, that we would be people like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the storms of this life don't shake that, that life. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity and the privilege through your word to live by your word. We thank you that we have the power through the Holy Spirit to live by your word. And we pray that you just help us draw closer to that yet today, Lord. So have your way with us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 50. As you turn there, I want you to do a couple things, if you would. We'll do a little exercise, a little finger exercise. Everybody ready? You're in Jeremiah 50? A little finger exercise. Flip through and just kind of notice between 50 and 51 and 52. Like how many finger exercises you have to go through in order to get that done. Right, like back and forth, 50, 51, 52. Everybody got that? Yeah. All right. Now, I was thinking this morning we might read chapters 50, 51, and 52. Or we might just read 50. <laughs> so by a show of hands, who would say just 50? All right, good. That's what I prepared. Or maybe he's spoken another way. Anybody ever play golf? You ever play golf? All right. So you're in the middle of the fairway. It's about 175 yards to the front side of the lake. It's about 250 to the other side of the lake, and the green's just on the other side of the lake, right? Now, if you take the best shot you've ever taken, well, let's just say a better shot than you've ever taken, but you think maybe you could do it. You could hit over that lake and bust the birdie move, right? Or you could just take the 175-yard shot to the front of the lake and do an extra, which you would have probably blown that extra shot on your missed putt anyway, right? Everybody understand what I'm talking about? Okay, so we're laying up in front of the lake today, okay? Chapter 50, that's what I mean. Is that right? Because I don't think... I don't think you'd come back if I did 50, 51, and 52. So, having said that, chapter 50 and 51 are all about Babylon, okay? For the first 45 chapters of Jeremiah, he was talking to the Jewish people pretty exclusively. From chapters 46 to 49 that we've been in the last few weeks, he was talking about the surrounding Gentile nations. And then in chapter 50 and 51, we'll read about the Babylonians. And then 52, really, we'll just kind of uh, honestly skim that next week because that's really a review of the fall of Jerusalem that sort of, he's already been through, but it kind of sets the stage for Lamentations, which is the next book we'll read through. Does that make sense? So chapters 15 and 51 about Babylon and um, Nate was teasing me last week. He said, I don't think you realize how long your introductions are. Well, I do realize how long my introductions are. And you just, we just all acknowledge that I'm hitting in front of the lake. So um, it calls for some introduction. Is that fair? Yeah. 
You want an introduction about Babylon or not? That's what I thought. Everybody look at Nate and say, we want some introduction about Babylon. So back off. All right, so anyway. Babylon, as we read through history, the history of, of really what we've read in terms of, of how they affect uh, Judah and Jerusalem, but also these neighboring nations. Babylon, I hope you get from ne- by now, has been the world-dominating empire. And um, just absolutely dominating. And uh, the city of Babylon has been a very um, expansive, again, dominating city. Um, one internet article I said, which is an internet article, said that at one time, Babylon was the size of Chicago. So think about that, an ancient city. Um, and so Babylon was just a, a, a very world-dominating empire at the time. Um, and part of what was a part of that is that they were really God's instrument to bring judgment and, honestly, destruction on a lot of these neighboring nations, specifically the Jewish people in the nation of Judah. So they were God's instrument. They were God's instrument of wrath. They were God's instrument of discipline. They were God's instrument of punishment. But what they forgot was that they were God's instrument. Right? And in some cases, in some of the individuals probably never really realized that. You know, you see, as we read through, uh, when we get to Daniel, we'll read more about the sort of the, the heart of, Nebuch- of King Nebuchadnezzar. But uh, he was, a, he was a, a complicated guy who um, most people believe w- would say that he ultimately got right with the Lord. But through all of this, the Babylonians didn't really appreciate that they were God's instruments that they were being used by God. They also didn't really appreciate that the Jewish people were God's children. They weren't, like, specifically, first and foremost, Babylonian victims, but yet, rather, they were God's children. And I think this relates to us a little bit, okay? If I can just, as a matter of introduction. It's important that we know that the person sitting across the table from you or across the uh, chair from you or that maybe wakes up with you is God's child. Does that make sense? That person is God's child. Now, as we interact with one another, sometimes we have occasion to be used by God to sometimes bring encouragement, to sometimes bring exhortation, to sometimes even, you know, in the right setting, bring discipline, right? But God defines those boundaries. I always say this. I hope you get this. I always say this. I will never, ever, ever spank my grandchildren. Ever. Now that's just real specific. And, and honestly, in some situations, there are some people that may disagree with that. But the reason that I say that is because Those are God's children, and they've been specifically, if you really carry out the order of how God, um, I think God gives very specific specific spheres of influence and specific spheres of authority, and the, the authority to discipline the grandchildren have been given to their parents, right? 
And so it is not my job, right? There are times when I might go to their mother and say, hey, did you realize, right? I won't say, hey, you ought to spank your kid. I'll never do that, right? But, and thankfully, she never tells me to spank my kids, which is probably more. <laughs> but anyway, she's probably tempted to. But, um, but again, I'm getting old enough, Nate could probably take me, so I don't try to spank him anymore. So, there are specific roles, specific spheres, specific uh, realms of authority. And I think it's important as Christians that we walk in the boundaries that God has given us. Even, out, even you know, spanking might seem as an extreme example, but how often do we as Christians act like we're somebody else's Holy Spirit? Does that happen? You bet it happens. Or that it's our job to tell you how to live your life. Well, in certain aspects, in certain situations, as we're maybe invited by other people, maybe. But I think when we do that too much, when we cross that line to walk in authority, to act like we're the Holy Spirit for somebody else, right, we're really sort of intercepting, if you will. Now, God is sovereign. God can do what he wants. But in a way, we're intercepting. That's God's job. And we're almost saying that God's not able to speak to that person because that, per that person needs me to speak to him. Does that make sense? Now, it's a little bit of a tangent. I understand. But the point is the Babylonians were a little bit out of, well, they were a lot of bit out of order, right? They were used as disciplined uh, instruments by God to specifically the Jewish people, but they, um, they took it too far. And so, so what we see is there's going to be a pronouncement of judgment upon Babylon. We see in history that Babylon was in fact judged, and we read about that a little bit uh, in chapter 1551. So we see three highlights of this chapter. Number one, Babylon is going to be conquered. Number two, the Jews in Babylon are going to be released by the Persians to go back to Jerusalem, just like Jeremiah said they would. Remember in Jeremiah, in the earlier chapters, Jeremiah said, you're going to be carried off, carried off captive to Babylon, you're going to be there for 70 years, and then you're going to be released. Well, what happens after 70 years? The Medes and Persians conquer Babylon, and they set the Jewish captives free, tell them to go back. It's uh, by Cyrus. We read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the, um, the Jews are released. They go back. And we see a little bit of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment as we kind of th think through this. There's a, a near fulfillment is the Jews are released to go back to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. But there's a far fulfillment that that speaks to sort of a broader picture, which is often how prophecy plays out. That speaks to a broader picture of uh, a regathering of the Jews in their homeland, right? We saw that really starting in 1948, May of 1948, right? The Jewish nation became uh, reestablished. I mean, what nation in the history of the world ceased to exist from, as, from almost, for almost 1900 years? From 70 AD to 1948, there was no such thing as Israel, right? Up until, up until 70 AD, there's a thing called the nation of Israel. 
and then it ceases to exist. And then in 1948, there's a thing called Israel again, right? What other nation in the world has that ever happened to? None. Well, what's that do? That, that, that authenticates the prophecy in the scripture. And so there's a regathering of the, na of the nation of Israel. And then that'll continue into the millennium. And in the millennium, Jesus Christ sets up his, his millennial kingdom for a thousand years out of Jerusalem. And the, the Jewish people are, are very much regathered at that time. So uh, we see present and future regathering uh, that's, um, there's sort of a, sort of a, um, if you will, sort of a, uh, foreshadowing of that we see in the regathering of the captives from Babylon. But, before we get into verse 1, because we're on an introduction. Babylon, where did Babylon start? Babel, right? Tower of Babel. Was started by who? Nimrod. Nimrod. Genesis chapter 10, <clears throat> 10 verse 9 was described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, most interpreters actually interpret this to be mighty hunter against the Lord. Nimrod is really the picture of rebellion. When you think Nimrod in the Bible, think rebellion, okay? And what's interesting is he started the Tower of Babel that was the beginning of Babylon. And Babel then continues to Babylon in the, in the era that we're talking about historically. And then in Revelation, there's a future Babylon, right? That we'll read about. And what's interesting is Babylon, just curiously, Babylon is the second most mentioned city in the Bible after Jerusalem, right? And so you see this contrast in the Bible. Jerusalem, uh, the root word Jerusalem means uh, peace, right? So you have this sort of uh, thing through the scripture. You got the city of peace and you got the city of rebellion. And they're at odds with one another. And we see this sort of uh, metaphorically played out, but sort of uh, very real in the pages of history that we read about here today. But think of Babylon as um, really the essence of rebellion from beginning to end. And here's what I want us to, here's what I want us to kind of take home today. And I think this is important. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I read about the Tower of Babel, right? Read about the Tower of Babel when you're a kid? A bunch of guys are going to sit around and make a big tower up to, the, up to the sky like Jack and the Beanstalk, right? And it's going to go all the way up to heaven. And I always thought, yeah, that's kind of a weird story, right? Do you ever think that? But I don't know that I ever really thought, you know what? That is outright rebellion. Do you ever think that when you're a kid? Tower of Babel, you want to build a tall tower? You know, if, 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 if you all want to build a tall tower, and, you know, if, if I were here and, you know, you said, hey, I'm going to build a, a skyscraper in Madison, I'd say more power to you, whatever. I wouldn't care. But if I read the tower, about the Tower of Babel, there's a part of me that's like, so what's the big deal? I don't think of it as rebellion. But here is the take-home message for today. Babylon is the Babylon from Babel is the essence of rebellion. You get this? 
if you trace it through history, it starts with a tower that says, you know what? We're just going to build a tower to the heavens because we don't need God. We're just going to follow our dreams. We're going to make something of ourselves. We're, we're going to follow our heart. We're going to follow our ideal. We're going to, we're going to accomplish our, we're going to set our goals high and our task high and our, and our, we're going to raise the bar and we're going to do it. Does that sound like rebellion? Honestly, it doesn't really sound like rebellion, does it? It just sounds like the American way. But I'm here to tell you, that's rebellion for the Christian. That's rebellion. I don't, I, because if I'm going to be a self-made man, if I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, if I'm going to accomplish all I set out my heart to do, all those things we read about in psychology books, if I'm going to do that thing, I don't need God. That is the essence of rebellion. And here's the point. It starts out with like a tower. It ends up in the book of Revelation as the harlot that's like the picture of end times prophecy that is everything that sets itself up against the power of God. Right? Just starts out with a little tower going up to, and you know they're not going to make it, right? But God busts them, right? Breaks up their language, right? Because God doesn't want, want that thing going. And so, Revelation's Babylon is a world system that will dominate the world during the tribulation period. Some say it's a literal place of a resurrected ancient Babylon. Interestingly, Bab the, the area of ancient Babylon is about 50 miles south of Baghdad. It's still rubble to this, to this day. Saddam Hussein was going to rebuild it. That wasn't successful. Um, but anyway, future Babylon. Turn over to Revelation chapter 18. I just want to read these verses for a minute. This is really what we find, and I want us to kind of get our heads around this. This is what we find when we start by building a tower that we don't need God for. And we trace it through Scripture, we trace it through history to like this ancient civilization that was a world-dominating power, and we trace it through to the end, this is what we read. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations, all the nations, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Does that sound like a no big deal tower? 
No, the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So it's a dwelling place of demons. All the nations have drunk. It's a commercial system of widespread rebellion. It's a commercial system of widespread rebellion. Different commentators argue whether it's a, it's a literal place or if it's just a system. But at the very least, it's a, it's a place that encompasses this kind of system. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Now that's interesting. Who are we? We're God's people. So he says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven. So they wanted to build a tower that reached to heaven. But in this case, Babylon's sins have reached to heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities, rendered to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure. Give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart, I sit as queen, I am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And so, we're told, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. And so what we see, I believe, in this picture of, you can turn back to Jeremiah. What we see in this picture of, the, of the Babylon being conquered by the Medes and Persians is sort of a small picture of a bigger biblical truth, and that is that Babylon the Great is going to be destroyed. And we see also a smaller picture of the Jewish people coming out of Babylon so they can go back to Jerusalem, the place of peace. And I believe that is a, speaks of a picture of us as Christians where he says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. We get to come out of that world system. Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 that we're to be in this world, but not of the world. We're not to be of the system of Babylon. We're not to be of the political, the commercial, the, you know, all the, the social system of Babylon. So how does that work? Well, it really goes back to rebellion. Are we trying to get to heaven on our own? Are we trying to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish on our own? Or are we faithfully, as we talked about the spheres of authority and influence, are we just faithfully carrying out the life God has for us, surrendered to him, and faithful to do whatever it is he calls us to do today, and trusting him to rule the world and to rule our lives? Are we letting him do that, or are we trying to orchestrate that, right? And that's really the distinction we're seeing. Everybody good with that? Verse 1. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, proclaim, do not conceal it, say Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces, for out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein, they shall move 
they shall depart both man and beast. So destruction is coming. Bel and Merodach were some of their idols. And destruction is going to come out of the north. That's the Medes and Persians. And when they come, they're going to come out of the north. So he's just saying, you know, Babylon's been, you guys have been dominant, right? But that day is, is coming to an end. There's a thing that happens when a nation becomes so dominant is that they um, sort of arrogantly assume that they'll always be dominant. You ever notice this? Right? And I love America, right? But we've been so blessed by the Lord, really, as Americans, that we've sort of become this sort of dominant, you know, we don't have, our world, thankfully, doesn't have empires like the ancient world, you know, but we're a pretty dominant country, right? And don't we have this sort of thing as a result of that, that we're, we're sort of, that's, it's just going to be like that forever? Well, maybe, maybe not. But Babylon thought that, you know, they were going to be that forever, and God says otherwise. Verse 4, in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, with continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. So again, we see the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. The near fulfillment here is the Jews are going to go back. The Jews are going to go back and they're going, to, uh, they're going to come, he says. The children of Judah um, are going to come. Um, but the far fulfillment is the children of Israel and the children of Judah will come together in a perpetual uh, covenant that will not be forgotten. Notice also, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord. Can I just highlight that for a second as a contrast to the Tower of Babel? And I want to go back to the Tower of Babel because we can read about Revelation Babylon, right? We can say, ooh, wrath and the, uh, the drinking of the wrath of fornication and all the nations are drunk. And we read that and we say, ooh, that's bad, right? We don't like words like drunk and fornication and wrath and judgment and you know, fallen and all those, that just, that just sounds extreme, right? I want us to keep in our heads, if we go back to Babel, we're like, hey, we just want to build a big tower and that'll reach to the heavens, right? And, and the point I want to make today is that these are really the same thing. These are really the same thing. And what I like in this verse here, he says, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord. I think if you think about it, that's sort of the opposite mentality of, hey, let's build a tower that we don't need the Lord, right? And let me just encourage us, for God's people today, if we're going to come out of Babylon, out of that system, however that relates to us, you know, in our own personal lives, if we're going to come out of there, we need to be people that can say, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. We're going to trust the Lord that he's in control of everything. He always will be in a perpetual covenant. Let's just surrender to him perpetually. That's the opposite of trying to build our own destiny.
And I think culture, we're culturally indoctrinated to want to build our own destiny. Because that's like what we do. You've heard me say a million times before. Go to a high school graduation. Ask the, or the open house, like when you can talk to them, right? Ask the, ask the graduate, what do you want to do when you, when, you, when you grow up? What do you want to do? Well, I want to do this, and it just sounds all like, or go to valid, listen to the valedictorian speech, right? What are you going to do when you graduate high school? By golly, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to reach a, make a tower that reaches to the heavens, right? I mean, right? And that's what we're supposed to say. Can you imagine a valedictorian speech? Well, we're just going to follow the Lord and do whatever he says. Can you imagine? They'd boo you off the stage, right? That's not carnal enough. Are you kidding me? Right? Let's be people that say, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. Verse 6, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to mountain. They have forgotten their resting place, and all, all who found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, we have, not been, we have not offended, because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. I think here you see the heart of God towards his people. The heart of God towards his people. You know, if you, in, in, the, in, the, in the immediate context here, my people have been lost sheep. My people are in Babylon. They're slaves. They're captives in Babylon. Why? They've just been lost sheep. They've just wandered. The shepherds, the, the guys that were supposed to lead them in godliness, they blew it. They led him astray. Now, they're accountable for their own sin, and the shepherds are accountable for their own sin and all that, and God understands all that. But, but what we have here is they, f- they forgot their resting place, and, and the people that, uh, that found them, the Babylonians, they devoured them. And yet when the va- Babylonians came in and devoured them, they said, hey, we've not sinned anything. We've not done anything wrong. We've not offended because these people deserved it. Because these people have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice. So we're just doing our job, right? So the Babylonians are in the wrong right? Thinking that they're, uh, you know, it's their job to decide justice. The Jewish people are wrong because they are like, they're like lost sheep. But we see the heart of God, his compassion for them, that he really just wants to restore those, those lost sheep. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, chapter 53. And yet, what does that make us think of? John chapter 10. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. You know, in this life we navigate, I don't know how we could do it without Jesus. Right? Can you imagine trying to build a Tower of Babel in this world? Trying to, can you imagine trying to accomplish whatever it is you think you need to accomplish before you die in this world without the Lord? That sounds exhausting to me. But trying to follow, faithfully follow Jesus, my good shepherd, and just say, you know what? You decide where, where you want to take me. There's something sweet about that. 
He's our good shepherd. Nothing else will save us from Babylon. Nothing else will save us from captivity. Nothing else will save us from any of the other perils of this life except our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And certainly, we can't save ourselves any more than we can build a tower to heaven. Verse 8, move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be like the rams before the flocks. For behold, I will raise and cause to come against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. And they shall array themselves against her, for sh there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. In Cal and Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. And so, you know, the same idea of, you know, we see in Revelation, come out of her, my people. Hear what God's telling the Jews. Move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of Chaldeans. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back to the place of peace. Because I'm going to raise up against Babylon the Medes and Persians. And in, the, in Revelation, God is going to take down commercial Babylon. Why did all this happen? Verse 11, because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness a dry land and a desert because of the wrath of the Lord. She shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues. And so because you were glad at the destruction of, of Judah, of Jerusalem, that's what he says. Because of that, you'll be destroyed. You know, even again, we'll read about it when we get to Daniel. But some of you remember the story, the night that Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians. What were they doing? Remember Belshazzar was in there having a big drunken feast with all of his cronies. And he says, hey, go get, the, go get all the drinking utensils that we stole from the temple there in Jerusalem. Right? And in, and in so doing, they're all getting drunk with these drinking vessels that they stole from the temple in Jerusalem as a, as a blatant mockery to the God of, of, the, of, the Jerusalem, of Jerusalem and the people, Jewish people, that we took these drinking vessels from their temple. And now we're getting drunk in a big drunken party until this creepy hand comes out of nowhere, Right? And writes, many, many, tekel you farsen on the wall. And literally says, Belshazzar's knees start to wobble. And they bring Daniel in and he says, tonight, the translation of the, the thing on the wall. Says, tonight, basically the kingdom's being taken from you, right? In the midst of their celebration of their dominance over the God of the, of the Jews. In the midst of their very celebration, boom. Medes and Persians come in. That's the end of Babylon. That's the end of Babylon. And he says even then, he says, 
because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon will be horrified and hiss at her plagues. You know, that land, now the, the Medes and Persians didn't destroy the land immediately, but that land was destroyed ultimately. And today it's still a desolate wasteland. Verse 14, put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand, her fountains have, her foundations have fallen, her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. As she has done, so do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people, and everyone shall flee to his own land." And so the Medes and Persians are going to conquer Babylon, and, uh, and yet then the future Babylon suffers a greater destruction. Verse 17, Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I punish the king of Assyria. So you may recall, by this time, the nation of Israel is divided into the northern kingdom of, of Israel, which was the, the northern ten tribes, and the southern kingdom called Judah, which was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom of Israel was carried off by the Assyrians about 150 years prior. And then the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off by the Babylonians. And he said, just like the Assyrians were punished. And by the way, by this time in history, when the Babylonians carry off the southern kingdom of Judah, what happened to the nation of Assyria? Gone. Gone. Right? During their day, they thought they were the world-dominating empire. Right? And they were. Until they were gone. Right? Babylonians took them out. Right? And he says, just like it happened to Assyria, it's going to happen to Babylon. And who's going to do this? The Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. The Lord of hosts is how he's identified here. I think it's mentioned five times in this chapter. The Lord of hosts is the God, not only of my life, which he very much is, the God of me personally, the God that knows the number of hairs on my head and he knows what I'm worried about today, is also the God of all the world empires, the God of all the celestial uh, fighting that's going on. The God that sees a bigger picture than anybody on earth sees. And believe me, even as we look at world events today, there is a picture that is bigger than anybody on earth sees. I can't pretend to give you an analysis of it. Do I know what's going on overseas right now? Not really. Not any more than my, you know, I, heard, I was talking to a guy yesterday, and, you know, this is what Putin's doing. I can tell you why he's doing it. And I, really? Whoa, that's pretty insightful. You know more than I do, right? I'd say something's going on in the principalities and, and in the realm that we don't see. Something major's going on, right? And I don't understand it, but you know what? That's okay, because that's not my sphere, Right? My job is to be faithful. Thank God it's not my job to fix the world. Right? You're all thankful that it's not my job to fix the world. Right? There's a sphere that's way beyond what we see. And God is totally in control of it. That's 
That's who is the Lord of hosts that we're talking about. Verse 19, but I'll bring back Israel to his home. Again, you see this whole thing, right? Babylon's getting destroyed. Israel's being restored. God wants those uh, lost sheep to find a shepherd, to be restored, to come to the place of peace. God wants fellowship with his children. He says, but I'll bring Israel back to his home. And he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. These are familiar places. You imagine you're in a, you know, we read these names like Carmel, Bashan, Mount Ephraim, Gilead. Like, yeah, they're just names, right? But keep this in mind. You've been captive for 70 years, right? We're talking about like the home where you grew up, right? The old neighborhood, right? It's got some familiarity and some, and some, uh, some sentimental attachment. There's more to it than just geography. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of, it, of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. So God will bring, God will bring grace and mercy. He'll restore fellowship. Again, that happens to us through Jesus Christ. God desires restoration. God always desires fellowship. You know, there's a thing that happens when we find ourselves in captivity. And you, again, you can take the metaphor, if you take it as a metaphor for any of a number of situations. But if we find ourselves captive, you know, I've been captive to the Babylonian system. I've kind of fallen for the Babylonian trap. And God says to come out of her, my people. And, and sometimes we can say, oh, man, I just, and we, and we kind of beat ourselves up, frankly. Right? Keep in mind the heart of God. The heart of God is to restore. The heart of God is to fellowship. The heart of God is to say, come out of her, my people. And who brings us out? Can we, just like we can't build a tower to ourselves, we can't really bring ourselves up out of the pit. Right? God brings us up out of the pit. God brings us back to Jerusalem, back to the place of peace. God brings us into fellowship with him. Verse 21, go up against the land of Marathim, against it, and against the inhabitants of Pecod. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord. He's speaking to the Medes and Persians now. And do according to all that I have commanded you. A sound of battle is in the land and, a, and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You've indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You have been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. Again, because you have contended against the Lord. What's that sound like? To me, that sounds like the description of Nimrod, a mighty hunter against the Lord, right? Babylon, historical Babylon, has contended against the Lord. Nimrod, the founder of Babel, was a mighty hunter against the Lord. We never prevail when we do anything against the Lord. Verse 25, the Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of who? The Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. So God is in control of all of this. Come against her from the farthest border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps of ruins, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. 
So the destruction comes. The destruction comes swiftly. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares the, in Zion, declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Notice here, the voice of those who flee and escape from Babylon are the ones that declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord. There is the thing that happens when we, as, as Revelation says, come out of her, my people. We have more clarity and more discernment, and we're able to call it for what it is. We're able to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord. Call together the archers against Babylon, all who bend the bow and camp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done, due to her, for she has been proud against the Lord. Again, has that same tone as Nimrod. Against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, her young men shall fall in the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. So, more destruction. Behold, I'm against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time that I will punish you. The most proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all around him. So what's the problem? What was the pro what's the problem in future Babylon? Pride. What was the problem in world-dominating historical Babylon? even as they were instruments of God's wrath and judgment? Pride. What was the problem with Nimrod and the guys that are trying to build a tower to the heavens? Pride. Where does that come from? It comes from the Garden of Eden. Pride. Pride. What do we fall prey to in our lives today? Pride. What do we really wrestle with today in terms of our own quest for significance? Pride. What is it that causes us to not want to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives? Pride. It's the thought that I can do it myself. I don't need him. I want to build a tower. I can build a tower. I don't need him. I'm going to build up my security. I don't need him. I can build up my reserves. I don't need him. Now, should we plan? Should we be wise stewards of life and stuff? Yeah. But we are completely dependent upon the Lord. The most proud, he says, shall stumble and fall. And the Lord is against the most haughty one. The Lord of hosts is against the most haughty one. Verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. You know, you can hold God's people captive, but guess what? Their Redeemer is very strong. His name is the Lord of hosts. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. 
A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against the, her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers, and they will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men, and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in their, her midst, and they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures, and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. So what do you see here? You see, God is against all the sources of Babylon's strength, right? They're soothsayers, they're mighty men, they're horses, they're chariots. God's against all of that stuff, right? What is it that makes us think that we can build a tower to the heavens? Well, our strength, our money, our resources, our leadership abilities, our ability to rally the troops, our influence. All these things are tools that we can use if we're not careful to build our own little tower of Babel, right? Until God disrupts it, which he usually does, right? But on the other hand, we can use those tools, again, as stewards. Therefore, verse 39, the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever nor shall it be dwelled in from generation to generation as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. Now just interestingly, this is why uh, people say, uh, some people say that Revelation's Babylon is a world system more than a revised uh, resurrected city, right? Because um, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. In the same way God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, no one is going to reside there. It'll, it'll be inhabited no more forever. So interestingly, it's kind of interesting if you look at, you know, contemporary news, right? Wasn't that long ago Saddam Hussein was going to rebuild Babylon, right? Did it work? No. But he was pretty scary there for a little while, wasn't he? Right? Right? Like, maybe he will. You know, you maybe, I don't know, maybe this is the thing. Right? Well, if you take this at face value, looks like it won't be rebuilt. And what is it today? It's a wasteland. It's a wasteland. Behold, verse 41, a people shall come out of the north, come, come from the north, and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the flood plain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong, but I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? 
Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations. So again, destruction comes upon Babylon. You know, if I use the word rebellion, like let's say before we started this today, I say, what do you think of when you think of rebellion? We all probably have a certain image in our mind, right? Maybe we have a certain person. Maybe we have a certain uh, ideology. Maybe we have... um, who knows? All kinds of pictures, all kinds of images, all kinds of thoughts when I say the word rebellion. But wouldn't we agree that that sounds like a harsh word? Like rebellion is like, right? What Samuel tell uh, Saul? Rebellion is, is the sin of what? Witchcraft, right? Should y'all dabble with witchcraft? Just curious. No, right. Good answer. Good answer. Very good. You guys are seasoned, right? No witchcraft is allowed here. Okay. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is nasty. Rebellion is evil. Rebellion is in the face of God. Does picking yourself up by your own bootstraps sound like rebellion? It kind of does. It does now, hopefully. Right? There's something, I think, in us that we need to be very careful about. And it's not like, you know, I think by the time we get to the harlot of Babylon in Revelation, we can say, yeah, that's ugly, right? And even when we see Belshazzar getting drunk with Jewish drinking vessels and mocking the God of Israel, we say, I'm going to call that rebellion, right? But I think there's a thing that we need to be very cautious against as Christians. That self-sufficiency is rebellion. Remember when, that verse I just spoke about, when Samuel spoke to Saul, he said, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. What was the context that that he told Saul that? was when Saul was told by God to go and destroy the Amalekites. And Saul said, you know, I think I'm going to destroy most of them. And I'm going to save the others to worship God the way I think I should. And I think I'm going to sort of obey God, but I'm going to kind of do it my way. Would we not agree that that sounds different than the harlot of Revelation. But I'm here to say, I don't think they're quite so different. And I think that's the lesson for us today. As we learn of Babylon, Babylon starts with the Tower of Babel and ends with its final demise in Revelation chapter 18. 
At the end of the Great Tribulation, when God has poured out his wrath for seven years, literal, I believe, a literal seven years on planet Earth, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be so ugly. But it starts with self-sufficiency in the human soul. That's a bad place to be. It's a very bad place to be. Let's be like sheep following the good shepherd, coming out of that system, coming out of Babylon and back to the place of, of peace, Jerusalem, being guided by Jesus Christ, being carried by Jesus Christ, surrendered to Jesus Christ, following him wherever he takes us and whatever that means. And that's a great life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of hosts. We thank you that you are the God of all creation. We thank you that you call rebellion for what it is. And Lord, we thank you that you call, that you call it with such clarity that we can be warned. Lord, please guard us from self-sufficiency. Help us to surrender to you, to your lordship, and to your leadership in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.